0: Thorn in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self determination and reclamation of land. hello everyone out there in internet land my name is michael i go by M on the interwebs welcome to thorn in your side and i am going to start this year proper so last episode we completed our summer holiday series with my mate john he'll be back you can bet on that for now we're going to start off the year and unfortunately, it's not going to be a case of turning a new leaf, though. We're going to still revisit the the baggage of 2020 in this episode by looking at the outcome of the US election and where things are at over in the US right now. So I, I need to press my Skype button to simulate me logging in to talking to people. Oh, no, I've just ruined the illusion. Uh, press the button, Michael. So I've brought back a mate of mine through the Facebooks, doing the best that we can, considering um, at the moment it's very difficult to kind of travel here and there. So I've brought back, hopefully, someone who's feeling a bit less pressured now, given shenanigans over the last month or so, Here's Jason. Hi, Jason.
1: Hello, thanks for having me back.
0: No problems. So just before the podcast, we were having a small talk, but... I suppose as an Australian, it's actually quite important um, that is the weather. So uh, I was telling Jason that um, we were kind of scared that we were going to face the idea of a two-pronged crisis, uh, one that we were quite familiar with uh, this time last year with the bushfires. Fortunately, this time around, uh, there doesn't seem to be as as big a problem as it is. Um, At least I'm not knowing about it because I'm not breathing any, any smoke and my hay fever isn't getting triggered magnifold so fortunately glass are full uh within australia we're dealing with crises one crisis at a time which is good in a way but uh yeah how's it going over in the u.s jason is it snowing there keeping warm the weather that's something you can count on amongst other issues that are circling the u.s what's the go over there
1: well i asked you about the weather because i'm dreaming of summertime because it's the coldest we've had the coldest week of the year and we're getting like a big snowstorm tomorrow night. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And I was like, uh, in, in past, the, the the way the school system works where I live, we get a small break near the end of February that my family likes to use to, to travel, like not far south, but say to slightly further south, where the weather's not quite as bad. And this year with COVID, you know, we're not going to roll the dice on that. So I'm thinking about summer in Australia. <laughs>
0: Having the fantasy. Um, I, would, I would suggest you stay away from, though, from the Crocodile Dundee movies. That's not necessarily the, the best, most accurate image.
1: I think I grew up in the 80s in America, and so like it, I was inundated with Crocodile Dundee and NXS and the Mad Max films, you know? So
0: uh, Yeah, that... Uh...
1: a mixed bag of stuff.
0: That Australiana uh, 1980s experience that um, I think everywhere else in the world experienced other than Australia, ironically exactly. enough. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you mentioned Mad Max. There's a little bit of that that might be a bit more accurate these days compared to Crocodile Dundee.
1: Exactly. <laughs> well, at least that's more the case in this the first Mad Max film. Like I always liked it because it wasn't totally futuristic. It was kind of like a, a present-day society undergoing breakdown. It was very relevant to me. I've watched that movie like three times in quarantine, I think.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> Actually, um, it's a little bit topical. And um, on a sad note, if you might have come across this, Jason, the guy who played two roles in Mad Max, one the toe cutter and the second uh-huh. one uh, the Imperator, I think his name was. <laughs>
1: I know Immortan Joe was not a good guy. He clearly was a bad dude. The
0: guy who played two roles in Mad Max passed away recently.
1: Oh really? Was that Hugh Keyes Burn?
0: That's his name,
1: yes. Oh my, I didn't know that. That's so sad. Oh.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was like uh, just before Christmas, but a lot of mm. tributes. It looks like he was one of those typical actors that could play a a, a pretty mean, bad guy, but in real life was kinda of like a sweet guy who had time for everyone.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite movie podcasts interviewed him and he came across as such a just a good dude, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like uh like very generous at this time and, and thoughtful. That's it's very sad.
0: Yeah, uh, well. Anyway, uh, I feel though that the Mad Max legacy will live on. I think there was another idea. That's in the woodwork. Namely, they're going to do a Furiosa prequel. Lady who was in the Queen Gambit, Anna Taylor Joy. She's going to play the character.
1: I could totally see that. I mean, I normally hate prequels because it limits the scope of what can be done with the story. But I guess they don't reveal enough about Furiosa that there's enough room to play with there, maybe.
0: Yeah, well, I think it'll be a case of seeing what underlying causes brought her into action or at the very least how she lost her arm, um, <laughs> but um, I'm at least imagining Anna Taylor-Joy having the hair cropped off, looking very mean and getting into it. But we yeah. shall also see if this is actually going to be filmed in Australia or some similar desert setting in Africa or perhaps even central US. We'll see.
1: George wanted to create a character that can stand next to Max. Somebody that can fight as strong as he can, can survive as well as he can. This ultimate female road warrior.
0: Anyway, Jason, it's uh, as much as it is tempting to escape into pop culture, I think we'll need to, to kind of bring it back to the world. Now, since we last spoke, you guys got rid of a proto-fascist, I believe. Yep. How are you feeling about that?
1: Well, you know, um, Inauguration Day felt very good. But I have to say, like, my immediate sort of afterwards, it hit me just how messed up the last four years had been. The anger I was feeling towards people I know who kind of went along with this got like a lot more intense, sort of feeling like, like, how could you not have seen this? (laughs) I think the most important thing, though, is that he's been taken off of Twitter. That might be more important than him not being president, that he's kind of not out there able to, like, rouse his minions so easily.
0: Look, um, I, I don't know if this is, like, a reflection of how um, sad the political circumstances are, but... It felt like, because there was the election result, right? Mm. And of course, as expected, Trump pulled out all stops to dispute it. And we found out what the consequences of that were, was in terms of how far he was willing to go. You know, even got to a point where, dude, wearing buffalo horns was able to storm storm your capital. But (laughs) anyway, so it seemed like he was getting a bit of momentum even with that and where it seemed like, He got his legs particularly swept from underneath him was the private corporations that currently control what is very much a public forum, forums these days, Twitter and Facebook. They gave him the effective bandstick and therefore I think he lost a lot of power in being able to mobilize and broadcast and insanitize. That's my feeling, like it was just a big milestone, which I don't know whether... For better or for worse but that's that's how it seemed to be
1: yeah definitely i and to me it was also striking that there are people i know whose reaction to all this was they didn't say anything about the capital being stormed but they were very upset about him being banned from twitter <laughs> which there's a similar thing that last year where there were people who were very upset about say a starbucks being burned down during a black lives matter protest but they showed zero concern for the people who were murdered by the police. That's always a big tell.
0: What What's that about, Jason? Because immediately when you when you tell me a story like that, it it, it kind of reminds me of of how things happen in the U.S. And suddenly the reaction is it's always on the basis of how it impacts upon oneself individually. Um, there seems to be that. And forgive me if I'm going to sound like the the arrogant foreigner here, but it just sounds like there's that break from being able to take a step back, looking at things objectively and saying, well, this event happened. What does this mean in a more general societal sense, a more structural sense? And from there, like where the criticisms can be made thereof. Don't know, Jason, what do you think about that? Or uh, you're going to write me off as an arrogant Aussie?
1: You've actually hit one of my biggest gripes about American society, so thank you. Okay. Um, so many people tend to see everything as the result of individual choices and not as systemic problems. And then a lot of people who are kind of well-to-do assume that they got into their position merely through their own hard work and you know choices, and therefore anyone who's not as fortunate as them must have made a bad choice along the way. So they're just very inclined, a lot of people are just very inclined not to see systemic causes for anything. And that's really the American way, like this individualism, not just of like, as a social value, but even as like a framework for viewing everything.
0: Yeah, at the risk of drilling things down to, to black and white things, I think there is a, a, a complete ignorance of the idea of privilege, where you see the ones that rise to the top or, or are able to, to succeed, as it were. Um, they definitely get a leg up, and it's often through family inheritance and the resources one can draw upon prior generations of family. But it seems to be forgotten, and I suppose my theory is, is that there does seem to be that ongoing cultural American comparison with itself to the old world, where uh-huh. they say, nah, what we're doing is all right because... It's not like the way it was in the old world where you'd be an aristocrat and then you'd be set for life because you're an aristocrat. In America, you've got to make your own way. And if you get a leg up from your family and your close friends, that's all good.
1: Yeah, it's just it's just weird way of thinking, you know? Like, if someone gets money from the government, they're a moocher, but if they get an inheritance from their parents, like, that's earned. <laughs> they're kind of getting out there, you know? It's a very common attitude
0: unfortunately with this election outcome and with trump getting the social media ban stick which effectively ended his right-wing putsch uh, (laughs) what do you think there jason do you think it's a return to that type of self-reflection within america or do you think it's it's restarted or continued the partisanship in some way is there still the risk of u.s civil war Part two, what's the mood there right now?
1: I mean, I, I feel like in the last week, it's been pretty obvious that that reflection is not going to happen. I have like two unifying theories of the United States. One is that it's been involved in a low-grade, non-shooting civil war for like three decades. <laughs> the other being, I used to say America's in its Brezhnev years, but now I think we've, we've gone past that. But like, you know, this the system that maintains itself for so many people... Don't even believe in the principles it espouses. Like I'm, I'm getting off track a little bit, but I think that like Republicans, for instance, had a moment to be like, "Whoa, what direction are we going?" And they kind of decided, "Well, the this is the people who vote for us want us to, you know, be okay with QAnon and all this stuff." And I think for a lot of Democrats, like they don't want to believe they're dealing with proto-fascists, right? And they want to think that now that the head vampire has been slayed that like all of a sudden like things are going to go back to like you know quote unquote normal and there's also even the, the not reckoning with the fact that normal was terrible right that's sort of another problem with like all the problems we had before trump came into office with like racism and rampant social inequality and and all this um and again the, the american media is just desperate for to go back to their usual framework because. They usually report on political stories as, well, you know, this person said this and this person said that. Just no willingness to say like, like even today, noticing the New York Times referring to what happened on the 6th as a riot. I'm like, no, the people involved were planning an insurrection (laughs) against the government. They intended to stop the election. That's not a riot. Um, But they can't call it that because then they might have to take a side and, and they're mortified at having to do that. So I don't know how much, and again, I'm a teacher, so I also see my students were very upset and concerned for the future and so forth, right? So I find it especially upsetting that the elders don't seem to be willing to grapple with what's really going on here, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think for me, it's been about really seeing which institutions you can kind of count on for an honest account, a reliable and trustful account, the people that you can ally and organize with, in the face of crisis response and also how serious this stuff actually is in retrospect. And then from there, you kind of see, well, with the force of hindsight, who's actually keying into that and who's looking to basically reset the blinkers and try to go back to to where things were before. Mm The one sentiment that I've gotten from Trump, and this is where I can kind of knit things back to, to previous episodes, is the underestimation of Trump, where at the start, and it was well described by by my mate John in our Adventure Time episode, where the King of Ooo was a, a quite an apt analogy of Trump. Um, but the character was introduced at a time where... Trump was really making his initial tilt towards the U.S. presidency. He was seen as a bit of a circus sideshow, something that the media at the time was prepared to laugh off as a bit of an oddity, though, mind you, an oddity to, that continued to persist. Then he got elected, and then the King of oo over the, the few years after that, became the Lich, or <laughs> well, more Lich-like. So... I feel like once Trump's gone, there has been a return in some sections to trying to minimise his impact, to try to present him again as a circus sideshow. And it is something that all aspects of the political spectrum is really having a go at. And for me, I wonder why that is. Is it because the minute that you have to challenge or address something like that, you're immediately having to challenge your own stake? within the world, within how everything's structured and, and all that sort of thing.
1: That's That's been an irritant to me from the beginning. Like like when he was first running for president, like people would laugh, like you'd have reporters laughing. And I didn't see anything funny about him calling Mexicans rapists, right? I, I didn't think that was worth laughing at. No, and like, again, some people on the right were invested in downplaying because they didn't want to reckon with the fact that the people they claim represent were totally down with it. But as you're saying, a lot of folks on the left in America, I think it's, they don't want to have to be part of a broader coalition, right? And so there's some of this weirdness of like, oh, well, it's just those normy, moderate Democrats who are freaking out about this and that's, we're too sophisticated to do that. And I think the people on the left worth listening to have been saying, no, this is legitimately a threat and it doesn't matter if you find some of the people who oppose him to be cringeworthy, like, we have to take this seriously. I think after the six, it became very hard for people who were downplaying him to be taken as seriously. I think that has been a big change. Like, because for years, it'd be like, oh, you know, if he's so terrible, why hasn't he done X, Y, or Z, right? Well, he basically tried to kill democracy in the country, so... You know, if the pandemic wasn't enough to convince you uh, that this was an especially terrible situation.
0: For me, uh, and, and being even in another country, Trump has had his impact. For me personally, um, and I suppose this is where I can hazard doing a, a self-interested introspection, over the course of four to five years, I've put on about 40, 45 kilos. And I reckon that's like stress weight gain. Because, yeah, 2015, 2016, I've got to tell you this, Jason, I was running half marathons, right? No, wow! <laughs> <laughs> and then um, this was also around the time where Australia was kind of having some sort of similar issues as well, where we kind of saw the end of our own version of Trump. I don't know if you know a guy called Tony Abbott, Jason? Oh, well, of course.
1: I, I found his, his obsession with the royal family to be kind of, Kind
0: of hilarious. Yeah, the, the Knights and Dames things, which was basically the the hill that he died on, that scheme. I would hazard to say that he seemed like a bit of an anomaly when he became Prime Minister. It had all the same flavour as it was when Trump came to power. But I feel like there were some elements within the, the US Republican milieu that thought, well, there was lessons to be learnt there with the Australian experience, no matter how short... It was with Abbott. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front Mr. Putin uh, 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 uh stop the boats. It's like Abbott came and went. We thought, OK, well, you know, that was just basically a, a blip. Although there was the greater ramifications of Abbott's presence in that over the last decade, you could time the changing of your light bulb by when an Australian prime minister came and went. So the prime ministership has been relatively unstable for the last decade, like in terms of someone assuming at least one term. I put that down to the the shenanigans that Abbott has pulled and the legacy still remains. So yeah, I, I can't necessarily say it was so much a blip, but long story short, he went... And then I think the US thought, well, I think there might be some advantage there by bringing in a populist right-wing loon that could still potentially be controlled, can say a lot of things, but at the same time, he'll get us votes. And I think that might have contributed a bit to the, the, the Trump phenomenon. <laughs> Getting back to my selfish personal introspection, 2015, 2016, then you see Trump coming in, it's like, well, okay, this feels like this. there's a bit of momentum here in terms of how Western edifices are doing an ongoing slide to the right and I'm not the most well off person you know Uh, I work as a community worker my job situation is never the most stable Uh, you're getting close to your 40s is this how it's always going to be also because you've had a working class upbringing and being a child of the neoliberal period you know that if there's going to be economic decline you won't necessarily be saved rather you'll be just flicked off the edge and then it's up to the middle class to, to kind of pick up the slack and the burden. So all of that just plays around in your head, Jason. And for me, I think that basically contributed to a weight gain, which I've set a New Year's resolution this year to, to actually get it all off. And so far, so good, Jason. In the last week, I have lost a kilo and 300 grams.
1: As an American who is in a barbaric culture without the metric system, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, kilos, I, that's pretty impressive to me.
0: It, it's pounds, pounds plural, I, I think.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. I, I remember this from elementary school when we, we did metric conversions. I've, for, I've like totally forgotten for for that. But yeah, congratulations.
0: Thank you. But but anyway, Jason, it feels like whilst this and stuff can be seen as a very esoteric experience, um, in some instances, I think stuff did happen because of, the flapping of butterfly wings.
1: Oh, definitely. I think that like the tenor of the whole political scene is like drastically changed. I could not imagine this in any other time, where you would have a pandemic and you'd have like large swaths of people saying, "No, I'm not going to wear a mask because it's like some kind of a like left wing oppression or something." It just blows my mind. Set the place on.
0: With the advent of Biden, I think as a couple of lefties here, Jason, I reckon we can do our best to chew gum and walk at the same time in the sense that we can be critical for Trump for all of the threats that he's introduced. But I think at the same time, we can also respect the critiques that can still be made for Biden. In that way, make a bit of space from, I suppose, the US liberals that would kind of think that all has been saved by being able to reintroduce a meek old white man to the head post. What do you think there with Biden, Jason? And what do you think are some of the things he could do, some of the things he didn't do, and some of the things that he could potentially do that kind of go back to the old problems with the US? And with old problems, I mean the neoliberal period, more or less.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have to say I have been pleasantly surprised is Biden is someone that for a long time I, I didn't like. Um, when Obama chose him as vice president, I was very unhappy about that. And he was probably at the bottom of my list of candidates that I preferred in the Democratic primaries last year. The thing about him is that he's basically a bellwether of the center of the Democratic Party. And the party has kind of shifted left. So he shifted left. So there have been some, some bright signs of things. I think it's a place where there's, I think, going to need to be some more juice is in regulating the financial industry, which hasn't been on the front burner, but I think events, recent events kind of show like there's more consciousness of like, oh, we've been letting these hedge funds just like make billions while gambling on the economic destruction there hasn't been a lot of juice on that, partially because the financial industry, of course, gives plenty of money to the Democratic Party. That's a place where I'd like to see more being done. I think, you know, he's a product of the Senate. He's used to old-fashioned ideas of cordiality that are no longer relevant. And I fear that if you don't properly punish the people who were responsible for the um, insurrection, then the problem won't get solved. So far, he seems to not be as conciliatory as I thought he would be. I'm afraid that it's the same problem that Obama had of, of trying to negotiate with people in good faith who have no interest in negotiating good faith. And then you come to the table having given up your concessions before you started negotiating. And then you what you get is like less than what you wanted. I'm a little concerned about that with, um, with Biden, I have to say. I and mean, I'm, I'm pleased to see his stuff around. He's trying really hard to stop like deportations, although that was sort of blocked in the court system. So I'm glad there's a priority on that. They lifted the Muslim ban. I'm very glad about that. They're pushing for like increasing the minimum wage, which I'm glad about that too. He seems to be very pro-union, like in the old traditional ways of the Democratic Party. I think that's a huge bright spot. But yeah, I'm concerned that when it comes to to things like healthcare, the safety net, childcare, college education, I don't know if anything's going to get done about those things. That's my big concern
0: that attempt to introduce significant regulatory reform i think might still present as a blind spot amongst other things and particularly stuff that is within u.s class interests maybe that's where we can kind of introduce something that's quite topical So what's the name of that computer game organization that was about to go belly up when you were in, Jason? Was it GameStop? GameStop? Oh,
1: yeah. So GameStop, like to give you context for people who might not know, like, like GameStop is a thing that is like in every barren strip mall in the United States. Like, you know, it's like a place you could buy used video games. And I frequented GameStops all the time. Um, when I lived in Newark, New Jersey, which is like, a, you know, an actual city where you walk around, there was one like a block away from my apartment.
0: Uh, okay in australia we have our own approximation of that called the electronics boutique or eb or eb games the name has taken a bit of evolution but they're about to die <laughs> in the ass as well and i think a lot of that's got to do with the fact that everyone downloads their games now rather than buying some femoral disc that you whack into your console and away you go something like that
1: yeah and it's like i mean i would go there to get like games for the playstation and such but yeah it's like a lot of retail it's like become, you know, online focused.
0: So with GameStop,
1: GameStop. Yeah.
0: So that as a company that was dying in its ass, that was being reflected within the stocks, but then some, um, bright sparks in the dark corners of the interweb. Uh, by that, I mean, Reddit thought, okay, let's play pranks. Mathematical. And decided to, to kind of game the shares, (laughs) game the shares of GameStop. And, uh, resulted in something that the economic wonks refer to as a short that ended up pissing off many a rusted-on capitalist. (laughs) Do you want to talk a little bit more about that one, Jason, and maybe we can kind of link that back to the
1: Biden Times? Sure. And I think some of the discourse around this is a bit misbegotten because like, yeah, I mean, I I enjoy watching the sort of ridiculousness of hedge funds being exposed. Like, that's great. But a lot of the people making money off of this are themselves like BlackRock Hedge Fund is making a big money off of this like operation. And like Elon Musk was cheering it on. And I have like an ironclad rule of anything he's enthusiastic about. I'm immediately suspicious of. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It, it has been funny to watch sort of like respectable Wall Street types decry this kind of thing when they spend all their time making money off of other people's misery. Yeah, it's and it's certainly like captured a lot of people's imagination. Like I said, I'm a high school teacher. A lot of my students were very aware of this, very interested in it. Normally, I don't think of my students as being that invested in like stock market stuff, right? But it's, it also kind of exposes how unregulated financial markets are in the United States um, in all kinds of ridiculous ways. Like, so for instance, for people who make their money from hedge funds, they actually pay a lower tax rate than I do as a teacher. Okay. There's a loophole that says that if you make your money from carried interest, you only have to pay 15%. That's what you get, salary. Jason,
0: for earning an honest wage.
1: No, it's true. And it's like, it's something that's always burned me up. Again, like they said, the capital gains tax, you know, which is the tax you make on stock, is also lower. And you know, it's the neoliberal argument for this is, well, it gets people to invest more money in the markets, which is good, and rising tide lifts all boats, and all that bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the one of like maybe the two things Trump ever said that I thought was worthwhile was he he, he threatened to end that loophole. Of course, he didn't. He was slaying out of his ass as usual. But yeah, like there's been a lot of. Um, People's anger that they have towards like Wall Street, I've seen just a lot of it being expressed through like the enthusiasm over this operation. And I think it kind of shows that maybe the Biden administration is gonna to need to do more to to deal with this problem of like unregulated capital. <laughs> it's pretty obvious that, a, that that a lot of people are becoming more conscious of this being a problem.
0: Yeah, the the immediate takeaway that I've got from this GameSpot story is that the ability to exploit such a fraught financial system is still there and it's a matter of just a bunch of anonymous accounts on reddit getting together and organizing and then creating some damage to it i feel like these are problems that go back at least as recently i mean it's how long is a piece of string but an immediate point in time that i can think of is the global financial crisis where at that time you really were seeing a financial system that was geared towards the ebbs and flows of stocks, the financial market. And then once the problematic aspects of that system was exposed, that is everyone assuming there was an amount of capital to be trusted with paying off one's mortgage, that seemed to go all arse up when it was increasingly realised that ordinary homeowners couldn't necessarily recoup what was owing on their mortgages and that set off quite a dramatic chain reaction I think in terms of confidence towards the financial market and there you go and I think the lesson to be learned there was tighter regulation now that was at the the latter 2000s 2008 and the common sense remedy and uh, and I'm kind of inspired to say it after what we've just talked about with this recent story Jason is regulation of the US financial system is there bravery within the political institutions within the U.S. to, to remedy it? I, I don't think so. I think rather what we saw in the decade thereafter was more profound, crazier solutions being explored. That is, bring in a populist, doing what even Hayek himself feared was in times of desperation. You bring in a strong man, and they'll set everything right. That's what we effectively saw in this last decade. And I think now we're just kind of seeing... Well, at least you and I, Jason, are kind of seeing the ramifications of that. I think the litmus test would be what, uh, what Biden's reckoning will be. Dunno. Uh, I, I still feel like regulation of a US financial system might still a bit of a big ask of the contemporary, Australia, uh, contemporary Australian. <laughs> already in slip for me. 51st state over here. A syndrome of the US political system. What do you reckon there, Jason?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. And again, we also have to be honest about the fact that, you know, in the Senate, it's still like a razor's edge in terms of like the power Democrats have there. Um, The financial industry has so much power. uh, There's a lot of Democrats who are dependent upon their money. Yeah, and regulation is such the obvious thing. And then we're like small regulations that were put into place under Obama. But what little happened got blunted. So I don't know if people know this in Australia, but, you know, Elizabeth Warren, was nominated to be the head of the Consumer Protection Agency. So they set up an entire new agency to basically stop people from being preyed on by financial institutions.
0: Sorry, Jason, just for a bit more context, Elizabeth Warren was also one of the the front-runner Democratic candidates leading up to this recent election. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, and, and again, like she, along with Bernie Sanders, were my two preferred candidates. Because, again, she's someone who wanted to make major changes to the financial system. And basically, she was blocked from taking her position. And so she got revenge by running for Senate and getting into the Senate, which was pretty great.
0: So her attempts to try to make some sort of fiscal reform, uh, financial reform, uh, within the means that she had uh, under the Obama administration got scotched.
1: Not by the Obama administration, but because of the Byzantine system we have in America where the Senate has to approve the president's nominations, and they basically... The Republicans in the Senate essentially blocked her from taking the position.
0: And there was a Republican majority at the time?
1: Yes. At the time that they, because after the 2010 midterm election, the Republicans took over the Senate and the House, I believe. But they set up this consumer protection agency as this idea of like, oh, this is a way to kind of rein in the financial industry. Because as you were saying, a lot of people were put into bad mortgages against their interests. And this was an attempt to stop that from happening. There were some attempts to reform that were quickly blunted. And then, under the Trump administration, the person he put in charge of that agency basically dismantled it. So the regulation never really happened. And home prices are skyrocketing again. So I, I fully expected another bubble to burst soon.
0: I'm talking rock bottom FICO scores. No income verification, adjustable rates, dog shit. The default rates are already up from one to four percent, fellas. And if they rise to eight percent, and they will, a lot of these triple Bs are going to zero, too.
1: Okay, you're saying that at eight percent, the bonds fail, and we are already at four percent? That's right. If they go to eight, it's Armageddon. Yeah, that's right. How come nobody's talking about this? You're completely sure of the math. Look at him. That's my quant. Your what?
0: My quantitative. My math specialist. Look at him. You notice anything different about him? Look at his face. Look at his eyes.
1: That's pretty racist.
0: His name's Yang. He won a national math competition in China. He doesn't even speak English. Yeah, I'm sure of the math.
1: Actually, my name's Jiang, and I do speak English. Jared likes to say I don't because he thinks it makes me seem more authentic. And I got second in that national math competition. It does
0: sound like the lessons haven't been learnt when you you kind of go the other way and try to bring in the Hayekian strongman. It's a huge problem. Huge, huge, huge. It does create a sense of dissonance, I suppose. Never mind the fact that there is probably a greater historical issues going on here that that sound like they need to be touched upon. Um. Anyway, Jason, let's organise some class struggle and we'll deal with that. But for now, we have a little bit of time left in our podcast episode. I do want to talk about the exploits that can still happen within a U.S. capitalist system. We've talked about the news of the day, GameSpot, and also what comes to mind, a few shenanigans that have happened over the last few years that the Trump agenda has overshadowed. And I see a bit of a trend. What is it? It's probably, probably the best way to describe it is... Uh, Hyper enterprise. That's what immediately comes to mind. And some immediate examples, the fire Festival a few years back, the Theratos scandal, which I think is still quite alive because the person who is responsible for that, Elizabeth Holmes, she's trying to drag it out in the courts as long as as possible and also trying to take advantage of burdens that COVID-19 are putting upon the U.S. legal system. And also, what I discussed in my last episode with old mate John, the Nexium stuff, which was at its face presenting a self improvement business. But you dig a bit deeper and then you realize, oh, there's an underground sex cult happening in that place. (laughs) So, you know, Jace, I'm just seeing a bit of a trend there in recent years where, with a lack of regulation, you're also seeing some people just really trying to, to get up in very sociopathic ways to try to earn a dollar, to raise a corporate business. But the shadow of how the business operates, the actual objectives of the business go secondary, where the objective is, is to, to actually raise the capital, to give the firm credibility and to give the firm sustainability. It's that economic rationalism that gives a firm value rather than the consequences that might arise in, in trying to achieve that. That's something I've kind of noticed over the last few years, Jason. Something that maybe the Trumpagedon has, uh, has pretty much overshadowed. Again, what are your thoughts? Or is it the case of an Australian being on the internet too much?
1: No, you're absolutely correct. Like, it's something that I think about all the time because you'll, there'll be young people who they certainly are, are anti-Trump, and they're interested in social justice. But they still fall into the framework that worships entrepreneurialism and, and this sociopathy of like, you know, gaining followers or gaining money. And I think it's just so embedded in the cultural values. It's I think there there needs to be like a values change. The sense of that people don't measure their worth by how much money they make, or like how much publicity they get.
0: You see that example writ large with Elizabeth Holmes, the way that she presented herself in the early days, she was trying to be Mark II Steve Jobs, the way she dressed, the way she presented herself, the PR stuff. Uh, Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah.
1: And the way people worship people like Jobs or Elon Musk is just, I hate it so much. I'm a crank when it comes to that. But it's, it's very old in America. It goes like Henry Ford was the same way. People Or, or Thomas Edison. People would worship them as if they, they possess some higher knowledge. and like, they know how to run a certain business, but they don't really know much beyond that. But yeah, it's like, it's, this, it's there's this real cultural premium placed off of like success measured in that way. You know, why you have people like that guy in Philadelphia who is given the contract to run the vaccine rollout who doesn't know what he's doing. But he, he does the razzle dazzle. I don't know if you know, there's a there's a great football podcast called Men in Blazers. One of the co-hosts is from Liverpool. I'm not going to attempt to do the accent because it'll sound pathetic and terrible. But he always cites an old teacher of his who would say, bullshit baffles brains, lads. <laughs> bullshit baffles brains. I've always loved that. It's like, exactly. <laughs>
0: well, I can imagine hearing that in a Scouser accent. So yeah.
1: But that's brilliant. Like it's, it is like bullshit baffles brains. You mentioned the, the Veritas thing is a great example of that. And it's because we have cultural values here that are primed to do that. You say innovation and people like think you're profound or something.
0: Desperation to innovate can lead to some pretty weird places.
1: A sudden development in Philadelphia's vaccine rollout has residents scrambling to make different appointments. The city cut ties with Philly fighting COVID now that it is a for-profit organization. People have questions, since quite a few people already got their first dose through Philly Fighting COVID, so they want to know how they're going to get their second dose. well the Health Department says they'll be in touch with those people. Philly Fighting COVID had run mass vaccination clinics, including here at the Pennsylvania Convention Center. We've interviewed Philly Fighting COVID here at 6ABC. They started in the spring building face shields and worked up to mass testing sites, and then mass vaccination clinics. It recently and quietly changed its corporate status from nonprofit to for-profit without telling the city. For Philadelphians interested in the vaccine, so far there's no official sign-up through the Department of Health website, but they do have an online interest form to fill out. State officials are strongly encouraging people to register for the vaccine through their counties where they live or work. Counties are trying to do what they can in order to provide more information.
0: Yeah, in Philadelphia, They're in their early 20s, still doing their undergrad degrees. Suddenly, Philadelphia are thrusting them to the forefront to take lead in COVID recovery through their vaccination (laughs) program. And uh, of course, it all went belly up. Do you want to talk a little bit about that one, Jason?
1: Yeah, sure. Basically, this gets into the problem that under neoliberalism in the United States, there's this notion that the private market will solve problems better than the state. And so... In Philadelphia, they said, Oh, we're going to subcontract people out to provide the vaccine. And it was a 22 year old grad student who, along with a bunch of undergrads, said, Oh, I'm going to like get like famous rappers who are local, like Meek Mill, to get vaccinated so that we'll <sighs> encourage people. It was a very fire festival, as you pointed out. Yep. Um, and, and again, they have no competence in public health whatsoever, but they pull the whole innovation, capitalism, razzle dazzle. And invoke the words Elon Musk and whatever. And, and this the city gave them the authority to do this and they, met, they they screwed it up. There were old people who showed up to get their vaccinations who were told they weren't on the list. Um, he stole some shots and gave them to his friends. Um, my joke about this, I have a lot of friends who grew up on the Eastern Bloc. This does remind me of the, the what people would talk about under that system where if you were an honest person, you would be you know you were stupid like you had to kind of like break the rules and jump the line to get anything you gotta Um, hustle
0: you gotta hustle
1: yeah and my joke is that um, we've done that in america we have like a a communist czechoslovakia level of like breakdown in the institutions with unfettered capitalism so like we get the worst of both simultaneously (laughs) uh, which kind of makes me laugh but but yeah that's that's what happened in philadelphia
0: yeah, and I think maybe the lesson we're kind of drawing upon here, Jason, is um, is capitalism a beast that can be tamed. Do we have a whip and a chair at the moment? Or do we just have to um, think that maybe the, the whip and the chair mightn't necessarily be enough? There's even those ones that actually think, well, if you kind of try and get on the tiger's back and ride it, that might be a solution. I know that I'm stretching a metaphor here, but I feel like that's what's going on here. I think with the end of the, the Trumpageddon, I don't think that's a solve. I think the problems still remain. And I think Trump has been presented for a little while there as as a fix. But as the years progressed, we found that it was actually creating a variety of further problems to be, to be introduced into the mix. Maybe as a way of concluding here, Jason, is maybe the discussion here can be dynamic in that... There's one that involves a critique over state and the capacity of state towards addressing current problems. Also, the more political economic one where you're seeing the flows of capitalism that might necessarily be correcting all of the, the social ills that everyone was promising us in the late 70s, early 80s. And we're at a loss still to try to work out how to resolve that Within the normal channels. Do you think that's the state of play, Jason, or there's, there's more to it at this point, or we just kind of barrack for Liverpool in the English Premier League and hope for the best? What do we do?
1: I don't know. Like, it's hard for me to know. One thing I will say is that, you know, I'm a teacher, I've been teaching for a long time, and I've never had students be more questioning of capitalism than I, I am now. I, I think there is a generational change happening where people are much more likely to look at systemic problems to understand that their situation is not just in their own destiny but my concern is this is what I'm getting at is that like the the culture is so suffused with neoliberalism that people still can't quite break out of that you know like to me like like a lot of the response to the reddit thing on wall street was oh i'm going to invest money and get rich i'm like why not have a collective solution <laughs> where we deal with this right mm-hmm. that's what i want to see I don't know. But I I think there's a definite groundswell of feeling, and the the pandemic has done this as well, that maybe things just can't go on like they've been going on. At least in America, it's been such a shock that perhaps you won't just have this like, oh, we're just going back to normal response to this.
0: One thing that you've mentioned there, Jason, and you've mentioned it a a couple to a few times this episode, is um, your experience with your, your kids and your class. That gives me a bit of hope. It sounds like there's an effort within this our newest generation to really cultivate a sense of economic literacy. If it's not being presented to them, it sounds like they're going out of their own way to try to figure it out themselves. That sounds like a step in the right direction, kind of given that, that within our times as uh, Generation Xs, Ys, We were continually told that the economy is a magical, unexplainable place, but it will solve everything. Yeah, I kind of get the sense that this incoming generation is showing some confidence to actually understand that there might be a curtain and there might be some old white dude behind the curtain. And you had to kind of go along an emerald road to realize that. But it it gives me hope, I think. And um, of course, that's, that's a slow burn. But yeah. if there's a role for organising, I think it is that the first initial steps is understanding just what the fuck is going on. And for that, I applaud your kids, Jason.
1: No, they really, um, they really sustain me. I have to say, yeah. make me very hopeful. Whenever I hear someone my age who who rips on young people, it just drives me up the wall.
0: Let's look at it this way, Jason. If, if Biden only makes the one term and decides to do the the handover as anticipated, let's do our best to kind of drum up that as the, the time that the boomers go into the sunset.
1: (laughs) Oh, as they say, um, in the American South, from your mouth to God's ears. Um, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Um. No, my hope for him is that part of me thinks he just might say, I'm just going to go for broke. I'm not going to try to win a second term. I'm going to do a lot of necessary things that might not be popular. There's a chance that might happen. I don't know. That's my hope, at least. And my other thing is to get all my friends who've been very active in opposing Trump to say, now it's time to hold Biden's feet to the fire and to push him to do the right thing. You know, I just don't want all the energy I saw in the last four years get squandered.
0: So what do you reckon is the next moment of truth for the U.S., Jason? Is there a point in time, do you reckon, or is it a matter of just seeing when the, the next GameSpot situation happens, or a little bit <laughs> of both? What, what's the go?
1: Yeah, I don't know, because I could not have anticipated something like that GameStop thing happening. I think that it's coming very soon, because the, the Senate is going to be putting Donald Trump on trial. And I think that's going to be a real moment in terms of seeing how many Republicans are willing to acknowledge that he tried to, like, destroy democracy in America. And I think if the people responsible are held accountable and face consequences, I think it'll be really important. And if they don't, I think that'll be really bad.
0: Have they set a date for the trial yet? Or has it just been a case of uh, whatever? Because it's after the presidential term. So there isn't pressure to try to to get Trump under the spotlight anymore
1: i think it's february the 4th oh okay yeah it, it's coming soon it um because there's there's a some some desperate desperation to this like because if he's impeached if, if this goes through basically he's stripped of his ability to run again for president yeah and also stripped of all of like the expensive fineries he gets as an ex-president And like I said, I think it would also establish a very good tone going forward that, like, that was unacceptable. And that, because there's so many fellow travelers who just want to be like, oh, I voted for him, but I just don't like abortion or taxes. And can act as if they can say that and not be questioned about the deeper implications of what they were doing.
0: Well, if Trump has continued to remain a presence and despite his being muted from the social medias, if there has been some sounds that he's continued to make is that he's still tried to present himself as a grand old daddy of the grand old party. And it sounds like there's been a couple of Republicans that have been, even at this point in time, have been willing to, to go back to buying into that. I think there's been a few meetings at uh, Mar-a-Lago that have since transpired yes. But I'll tell you what, Jason, you're free in a couple of weeks. Maybe you might want to do a, another podcast episode where we talk about consequences of said trial. It sound like a plan? Yeah,
1: yeah. Like in in this pathetic country, I'm still going to be under quarantine in two weeks, not able to go anywhere. So I'll be around. <laughs> okay, well. It won't get solved that fast. Although I did get my first vaccination shot. So that's that's awfully nice.
0: Ah, So, yeah, is it going to be a a schedule of three shots, is it?
1: I think that might change. I think now that's how it's going to be. Like, my second shot is going to be in February. Yeah, because I'm a teacher in New York City, I got priority, basically.
0: Okay, yeah, an essential worker. All right.
1: Yes, (laughs) basically means go to the front lines. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Gallipoli, basically. (laughs) You're essential. (laughs) Get out there.
0: I uh, so identify with that right now, Jason. Good, good work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, well, let's do a deal here, mate. Let's revisit again in a couple of weeks, see how things are going in the trial, the trial of this entry. Um, and <laughs> and we'll see if you, we'll see if you got your second jab or not. How's that sound?
1: No, That'll be great. <laughs>
0: All right, well, cheers, Jason. Again, um, it's it's been good to have a chat with you. I'd like to try to keep in touch. Maybe one day we can do an episode where every second minute we can kind of leak in a Simpsons quote. Ooh, yes. That's the dream. So until then, Jason, all the best.
1: See you soon. All right, thank you. Well, my work is done here. What do you mean your work is done? You did not do anything.
0: <laughs> Didn't I?
1: I'm a very stable genius. You-